Well, I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, a little lengthier portion of Scripture than perhaps we normally read. Luke chapter 20, verses 18 through 47. 18 through 47. And all of you are pretty sure that there's no way I can preach through all of that, and you're probably right. But we're going to give it the old college try and get through as much of it as I can. Here we go. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says. Did I say verse 18? Sorry. Started verse 20. I just realized I said 18 when I meant 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Then some of the Sadducees, who deny there is, that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age... And the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. He said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Then, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, 
the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. We want to continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. We are going to move into the last half of chapter 20. And we are going to again see Christ confronted by and then confronting the leadership of Israel. We have seen that already in the questioning of his authority and the in the overchanging on the money tables of, of just uh, the uh, whole basis of his baptismal work, of his teaching work, of his miracle work, and specifically in the Temple Mount area, which is where our attentions are focused. So far, we have been on our way to Jerusalem. We have now arrived, and Jesus Christ has arrived um, not silently, not quietly, uh, not unnoticeable. Um, when you go in there and disrupt business as usual on the Temple, uh, you're going to make some enemies and you're going to make some racket and it's going to get some attention. And that attention Christ is not going to waste. He's going to use it uh, to teach. And he does that through both parables and direct questions as well as um, forthright teaching. And we find nothing different here in our text before us. Um, we find now that uh, last week we talked about the fact of the enemies had designed designed to notch it up a bit. We're going to try to catch him. It's time to set a trap for Jesus Christ. Um, We have taken it from him on the chin enough times. He has uh, dealt with Levites and Pharisees up in Galilee. He's dealt with them all the way around the northern regions. He's dealt with them up and down the Jordan River. He's dealt with them in Jericho, and he's always put them in their place. Well, now he's dealing with the head guys. These are the main priests, or the high priests, not just the Levitical uh, lower priestly order. Um, These are the the chief Pharisees. These are the scribes and the the high ones of their order that Jesus Christ is going to encounter now. And they've already been put in their place at least once or twice here. And we find him now uh, prepared to be ensnared, if possible. And that's what their intent is. And uh, yet, in the midst of that, we are going to find them quickly and directly silenced. And then confronted. Again, in, in fulfillment of prophecy that only by false testimony, only by false witness, could anything be held against the Christ, the Son of the living God. Before we look into our text this morning, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this time together. Thank you most of all for our salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look into your word now this hour, we pray your Spirit's unction. We pray his uh, conviction, his illumination, his encouragement, comfort. Lord, it is impossible that the words of man can do all this. Certainly not this one. But we know it is well within your capacity to take this message and make it all of those things or any one of those things to each one here. And so our trust is in you. We do pray you might guard this time from error. You might guard this time from the opinion of men. You might guard this time from the philosophies of men. That will be your truth. That we might receive it as such in humility 
willing to bend our will to yours. No, Lord, to break our will against yours. We might surrender ourselves to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Sorry about that slip in my prayer. That's from a strong-willed individual. I've been taught all my life you should bend your will a little bit. And God says, no, that's not enough for me. I don't want you to break it for me. And that's what God calls us to do. Well, talking about strong-willed men, we're going to deal with some of them today. We're going to deal with uh, the leadership of Israel. It's been entrenched there now. Uh, They have uh, a sordid history amongst their number that they really don't want a lot of people to know about. There have been incursions of Roman authority within them. There have been rebellious and seditious things happening amongst them. They are fighting among themselves, and we're going to see that a little bit this morning as well, as there are factions within their groups. And so we are confronted now with a lightning rod, and that's what Jesus Christ becomes. A lightning rod for all of them. And so when we come to verse 20, it says, They watched him. And since spies pretend, it's not just one part of this group, but in fact, all of these factions come together to oppose Jesus Christ. And they send in these spies, we talked about this last week, to deliver him with an objective, to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Their objective was to tangle him in what Jewish authorities were really good at, weaving these complicated, uh, intricate uh, interactions, uh, that's probably the best thing to do with it, they're just webs, that uh, uh, trip people up. And that's what their hope was, that they could come up with something that they could accuse Jesus Christ of in front of the governor. Uh, That they could also have accusation against him religiously before the people. And this was that, that dual aspect of what they were trying to accomplish. They recognized his popularity among the people, but they realized that if they could convince them of his doctrinal error, that they would side with the establishment. But that, that wouldn't hold much ground with the governor. The governor was interested in political things. And so they were going to try to get Jesus to slip up on these two areas, specifically in regard here with Luke, to political issues. Well, what is more political than talking about taxes, Right? I mean, we could do that today, couldn't we? Even VeggieTales manages to slip in a little political commentary in one of their videos, one of their early ones. Um, I think it's their Christmas video, isn't it? Wasn't it their first Christmas video? They had to slip in this little IRS thing. Um, here's, uh, is it, who was dressed up as Larry the Cucumber, right? And no, it was Bob the Tomato was Santa Claus. And I don't know what Santa Claus was doing in VeggieTales, but I don't, it's not my Bible, but there it was. And uh, we can give a cookie to a robber. We can give a cookie to a marauding Viking. We can give a cookie to someone else. But when the IRS agent comes to the door, he gets the door slammed in his face. So even in our modern day, in children's videos, taxes are going to create, what should I say, a little... Emotion, a little discussion, and so here we come. And they don't just come at him with the question. They come at him as most spies 
do, and that is as angels of light. They come into him, butter him up, tell him how wonderful a man he is, and we have that description here. And everything they say here is true. There, there's not an untruth here. What they're speaking is true, but it's not something they believe. They are lying in that they are not revealing their true heart. But they are trying to take the truth and twist it to convince Jesus that don't you worry at all about the authorities. Don't worry about what's politically correct. Just say what's on your mind because we're sure that as soon as you say what's on your mind, it will be enough to get you in trouble with the governor. Which, by the way, would probably work on someone like me. Teacher, we know you say and teach rightly. They know that. They acknowledge that they know that what Christ is teaching is true. This is his enemies. You are teaching what is right, which he has done. You don't show personal favoritism. They've already recognized that fact. He doesn't care how high or how low you are. He's going to tell you the truth. Isn't that a wonderful testimony they're giving of him? You don't show personal favoritism. The implication that they want to make is that if that's the case, you're not worried about what the governor thinks. Which he isn't, by the way. But that's what they want to lead him into, as if he could be led in that way. You're going to teach the way of God in truth, which again, also, is a truism. Everything they have said is accurate. But its intent is to say, now speak freely and let's prove once and for all, are you the king or is the governor? Is the political authorities around you someone you fear? And here's the question we're going to posit for you today, and that is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Very simple, direct question. Interestingly, still a question being asked to this day by Christians. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And it's a question that has gotten a lot of people in trouble, and some of my brethren in jail, um, because of the manner in which they are confronting this same age-old question. And let me insert here that um, our church pays taxes. I'm just going to insert that a little bit. This week I went to buy, or not buy, but to shop. There's a difference. I was shopping, not buying. It's too early to buy these things. I was shopping, and I was shopping in a janitorial supply house. I did buy something, didn't I? I bought a mop. So now we can have two people mop this floor. I get to have help. Um, but I was asking about toilet paper dispensers and paper towel dispensers and soap dispensers and other such things for the restrooms that we're building over here in the next building. And um, he said, well, and he gives us a really good price, Christian man over there at Shamrock. And, and, uh, gives good, and then, of course, when you give me your non-taxable transaction certificate, you know, we won't give you, we won't, I said, no, we pay our taxes. And he looked at me and I looked at him. He says, what do you mean? You don't have to, your church. I said, that's not true. I said, if I want to say whatever I want to say from the pulpit, I have to pay my taxes. 
And Lyndon B. Johnson made that one up, that we can avoid this by calling ourselves a 501c3 organization, and then if you follow the government's rules of what you say from the pulpit, then you don't have to pay taxes, and it's a cheap buy-off to silence pastors. That's what it was. So we pay our taxes as a church, so everything we buy for this building and that building and anything else, every material we buy, we pay sales tax on and uh, fuel tax, whatever else we have to do, we pay our taxes. Um, we like the liberty it gives us. It's cheap. That's cheap liberty to say whatever you want to say is, what, a few percentage, 6% or something? That's cheap for liberty. We talk about what is the cost of liberty, and we talk about it in spilled blood, and yet Christians are lining up to go into bondage over 6% sales tax. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Christ makes it very simple. What belongs to Caesar? Did God print this money? Did God establish this economy? Is this my economy? No, God has a whole separate economy in which He owns everything and we own nothing. That's God's economy. We are the managers and he has, He's the owner. That's the economy of God. But this economy has been set up by a government. In that case, it was the Roman government. In our case, it's this government, the American government. Um, and... And we can sit there and debate whether these taxes are lawful. We can debate whether these taxes are, are being spent properly. And we can go to the polls and we can vote our conscience. But fundamentally, it comes down to this economy is established by our government. They are, and in this country, well, the Federal Reserve, but, but they alone print money. Although we do have some communities now in the United States, uh, in back in Northeast states, uh, Massachusetts, I think, has a, few communities that print their own money. Utah has a community that's printing their own money uh, backed by gold. And uh, if you go to those towns, you can spend not only U.S. dollars, but also the community dollars, which are worth a lot more. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, that's way of what's going on. But the economy essentially is our government's economy. And Jesus Christ basically says it's their economy. This is their money. Look, it, their pictures are on it. I don't have my wallet today. Um, to hold some out. Their pictures are on it. They're Caesars. They're leaders. Their name is on it. United States of America. Uh, it's theirs. It's their economy. It's their means of exchange. He says, and, and so it's okay for them to set the rules by which to run that economy. And if that involves you giving a significant portion, whether it's 10%, 20%, 50%, <laughs> Yeah, some people in this country are paying that. Uh, in taxes, I don't know who, but someone is, I'm sure, because they keep talking about them. Um, it's the government's right to do so. It's their economy. We have lost that concept because we are so inundated, inundated with the idea of a democracy, that this is our economy, but we aren't a, a democracy, we're a republic, and so it's their economy the bums we voted in, um, they're running it. And if they set the rules, we abide by those rules of that economy. And so he says, pay the taxes to the people who want to pay taxes. It's lawful. It's right. But in doing that, don't think that that's a replacement for God's economy. 
The government's economy is not a replacement for God's economy. It operates within the jurisdiction. We do not neglect God's economy in fulfilling the requirements of man's economy. And so what is God's economy? Give him what's his. What's God's? Everything. All that I am, all that I have, all my energies, all my talents, all of my abilities, all my time, um, all my family, everything I have is God's. My very breath belongs to him. Give to God what's his. We're not talking about 10% of my earnings. We're talking about all of what I am. Engaging myself and, and submitting myself to the economy of God. I've surrendered myself to the economy of men because that's the means of exchange that we use and that's the way we set up this, our society. And so I will live at peace with men in that respect and then I will engage myself in the economy of God. I, can I legally get out there and say, I'm going to avoid taxes here, I'm going to avoid taxes there, I'm going to avoid taxes there? I could probably spend a lot of time and effort engaging in that. And in the end, what would I have? Wasted a lot of time and effort for a few shekels. Dimes. And I'm fascinated by how engaged we are in finding any kind of loophole that might save me a few dollars on my taxes, and yet we are not equally engaged in God's economy of closing out the loopholes by which I am not involving myself in my resources at God's command. Are we equally looking for loopholes in the Bible? How can I get out of spending this time with God? How can I get out of, of using this uh, ability for God. How can I avoid surrendering this resource to God's hand? Is that what we're doing? Are we viewing this as a tax law in God's economy that we're going to find loopholes in? The powerful command here is not really about taxes. That's not what Christ is pressing us to. He's pressing us with a simple statement at the end of verse 25 and to God, the things that are God's. And this was the issue that he wanted to press. The political aspects are secondary at best. What his primary concern is, are you giving to God what's his? You're so worried about your taxes, about your nickels and dimes and your dollars and, and 20s, that you're missing the most vital aspect of your ministry, and that is everything else that God wants. And not only will He want it of you, He will hold you accountable for it. There will be an audit, as we have said earlier in Luke. There will be an audit that we are all confronting. We are racing forward to that audit. It is coming. Will we deal wisely or foolishly? in the time we have left before our audit comes. Give to God the things that are God's. Well, they couldn't catch him there. They marveled, and then they were silent. Isn't that great? Verse 26, they just kept silent. He quieted one whole group. The body that was sent there, probably lawyers, um, that was sent there to try to get him caught up politically into something were silenced. 
He wouldn't take the bait and get into this political spectrum of, of engagement. He would rather uh, press it again. Are you giving to God what is His due? Which is all that you are and all that you have. Here comes the next group. The first one was more of a political and social aspect. Now we're going to come into uh, a pseudo-religious aspect. It's still pretty uh, societal, not really theological, but there was a theological question underneath the question. The Sadducees are those who don't believe in the resurrection. Isn't it interesting that they come up with a question about, guess what, the resurrection? You can almost see the sarcasm dripping from them as they come to Christ with this pseudo-religious question that hopefully will get them in trouble and stir the pot up. Um, and, of course, there are some in the very audience who are the enemies of the Sadducees who would also like to see Jesus Christ stir this pot up and him become torn to pieces in the battle between the two sides regarding this matter of the resurrection. So they come with him to him with a hypothetical story. And don't you love hypotheticals? In the area of theology, hypotheticals are pretty much useless when it comes to solving theological problems. Christ isn't going to get caught up in the hypothetical. And you know the story. We've read it here this morning already. The question really underlies the idea of a kinsman redeemer, which is a very precious doctrine because Christ is our kinsman redeemer. So they're playing around with a very precious doctrine to Jesus. And they're playing with it. The idea of a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament was that if I have a a wife, and we don't have children, and I die, then it becomes my brother's responsibility to raise children uh, in my name. The first child of that union would be raised in my name and with my inheritance separate from any further ones. And so they're going to play on that, that kinsman redeemer. Of course, the great story of that is Ruth and Boaz as in terms of the example of that biblically played out in full. And so they lay it out there and they're using this very precious truth and teaching of Scripture uh, that is fulfilled in the antitype of Jesus Christ. And they're going to play with it a little bit. Let's say it happens seven times over and now the woman dies. Whose wife is she at the end? <laughs> we got him. Don't you love people to ask questions they think they got you with? That are really very simple questions. Um, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, yes. Very simple question. Yes, he can. So next time someone says, this is say, are you stupid? Yes, of course he can. They say, well, then he can't do everything. God, and by the way, how big does that rock have to be that God can't lift it? This big. If he says he can't lift it, says he won't, if he says he won't lift it, he can't, because he will not break his promise. This is the quality and nature of God. So it's a very, which came first, chicken and the egg, a very simple question. The chicken, because I'm a creationist. I don't believe that something that wasn't a chicken laid an egg that was a chicken. 
I'm raising chickens, so you know that I know what I'm talking about. Okay, in my blog, I put on there that I have 12, 15 chickens. I'm trying to raise a platypus. I'm sure one of them is going to lay a platypus egg one of these times. Um, it's going to happen. Out of all the chicken eggs that I've eaten, none of them were platypuses because they never got that far. It's our fault. Hard question. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? What they're really saying is, see how silly it is to believe in the resurrection? We've already made the idea of kinsman and redeemer kind of something that we can play around and laugh at. A very precious doctrine. Now we're taking an, uh, an equally precious doctrine and we're totally trying to blow it out of the water by saying, it's silly. You're foolish. You're stupid to believe in this. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They're asking this question hypothetically to try to get Jesus Christ befuddled. And he looks at them and he answers it very directly because most of these silly questions that the world makes up thinking it's going to befuddle Christians are just silly and foolish. He looks at them and says in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age. I almost wish he would have said it, which none of you have so far among your number. But he didn't. That's me. I'm a little more sticky like that. And the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. He says, you are thinking on this physical plane. You are foolish in your way of thinking. We should be thinking on a spiritual plane that there's a different whole world and existence not that there isn't a physical plane there, but that that plane is on a different premise. It would be like unto the angels in that regard. That this matter of the, of the relationship between a husband and a wife is one for this life and this life alone. That's why we say, till death do us part. Because every marriage is temporary and we know it. And I don't care what the Mormons say, um, that's the biblical truth. Till death do us part. But God is joined together, let no, no man put asunder, um, is the concept that that is a union that is expected to be lifelong until one or the other dies. And then the expectation is, if there's a, no children there, that a kinsman redeemer will come along and, and seek to redeem. That's how important it was uh, to have those children in that relationship in that uh, society and in, according to the law. How precious it is in God's sight. Now Christ has answered their superficial question, the superficial uh, scenario they've laid out there, but he wants to address the underlying evil that they have stated. And that underlying evil is questioning the resurrection. And so he comes to verse 37, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. And he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. All these, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all these live to God. Why? Because the, they live by faith. And God credited to them as righteousness. And so God is the God of the living. If you want to really ask about the nature of the resurrection, you're really questioning the nature of who God is. 
When you question the resurrection, you are questioning the person and character of God. And that's what these men were doing. And once they understood that one of the primal statements of all Judaism is, is that we that the Lord is one uh, the, that the He is a living God. Once you have a living God in in your in your primary statement of your belief system, which even the Sadducees had that living God concept, that it wasn't a dead God, it wasn't a, a, a long forgotten God, it wasn't a, some guy that died a long time ago, it wasn't about uh, 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 something I made out of rock or metal or or sophisticated electronics. Um, None of those are my gods. I have a living God. Well, if you have a living God, why don't you believe in the resurrection? The evidence that your God has power over death. And this quieted them. But there's another group that had something to say. That was the scribes among the Pharisees. They piped up because that's what they wanted to hear. You've well said. We believe in the resurrection. and Well done. We finally have a closing argument for this between us and the Sadducees. Some of the scribes says this. says, teacher, you have spoken well. And so now they're just going to be quiet. Because he hasn't gone to the debate that the Sadducees, the Pharisees and scribes have been engaged in for really hundreds of years at this point. Um, he hasn't engaged in the debate. He's taken it to a whole other level. And he's brought into question what you believe about God precipitates all the rest of your beliefs. And the Sadducees, you see, had an inconsistent belief system. They said they believed in a living God, but they didn't believe in a resurrection, which is life out of death. And that was inconsistent. And Christ has just pointed that out. I find it interesting whenever um, you get involved in these kinds of environments um, and you see the inconsistency. And we're not talking about things like the triunity where you have three and one um, and, and uh, that are difficult to rectify in our minds that we, we can't always associate that. We're talking about something that is directly inconsistent one with the other. Like a hyper-Calvinist doing evangelism. That, that's inconsistent. It just directly is. If you believe that God had a decree that everything's going to happen the way it's going to happen, then you have an empty purpose in evangelism. So we find this inconsistency that you have a belief here that you don't believe in the resurrection any longer. Now, you say you believe in a living God. Do you not see that they don't connect? That this is not consistent with this? So either you need to reform your belief about the resurrection or you're going to have to deny that you serve a living God. You can't have it both ways. Christ calls them to that simple truth. Well, we're not going to have time. Well, maybe we will have time. I'm moving right along here um, to get into Christ's question. He wants to now turn it on to them. And I want to really just take the time to note where he's going. 
They have tried to catch him politically. They have tried to catch him in the theological debates of the age. Now he wants to draw their attention to what is right in front of their face. Who is the Messiah? Who are you looking for? Who is your hope? Who is your deliverer? Who is the Savior? Where does he come from? What is he like? We can get caught up in wrangling over your political worldview versus mine. And I'm really hard to pigeonhole, so good luck on that one. Some of you have tried and not succeeded very well. You can't tell whether I'm a liberal conservative or conservative liberal. You're not sure. We can get caught up in these theological arguments over really what boil down to very inconsistent statements. And there's a time and place that we need to discuss theology as long as we do it consistently. But Christ comes down and he says, listen, the issue this week, this week in Jerusalem, the issue is, who am I? In your life, who am I? Who is the Christ? What is he going to be like? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a political fight? Are you looking for an argumental fight over uh, an obvious teaching of Scripture that the resurrection is going to occur? Why aren't you looking for the Savior? His question is, what about this guy, the Christ, which means the Messiah? How is it that he's the son of David? They all knew that that was the prophecy. The Messiah would be at the branch of David. The horn of David. That's how he's described. That's who they're looking for. And yet, he has to be greater than David because David calls him Lord. He says, are you looking for someone who is the son of David and yet greater than David because he was before David? Are you looking for this kind of a person? Do you understand this? They didn't grasp it. They were, they were dumbstruck by it. Matthew describes it more fully as well as Mark more fully, extensively about how they interacted with this and, and that they're scratching their heads and can't really come up with any conclusion about it. But he's basically leading them to understand that the Messiah is going to be someone who is of the line and lineage of David, and yet David's superior. Not only in grandeur, but is superior chronologically. He's going to be prior to David. The David even in his own day, prophetically, called Jesus his Lord. Because he knew that that Messiah to come already was. Jesus Christ comes to them and said, Listen, set the politics aside. Set these, these squabbles over words aside. And let's get down to fundamentally what needs to be resolved today, and that is, who is the Messiah you're looking for? And let me share with you, there are many Jesuses around these days. Many. We're going to be talking about that this afternoon and the challenge, the charge to the church that I've been 
commissioned with a charity. Um, there's many Jesuses out there today. We have redefined him and redefined him and redefined him and redefined him to whatever is our comfort level. So there are many churches today that are going to use the name Jesus that have a totally different character involved than the one who came and died for our sins. This is the one they should have been looking for. All these men were supposedly looking for a Messiah, but they weren't looking for the right thing, the right person. They were looking for someone to lead them politically. They were looking for someone to feed the multitude, to lead them social economically. They were looking for someone to do all of these things. For what they weren't looking for was the Son of God to come and live sinlessly among them and to die by their very hand to save them from their sin, to rise from the dead, the resurrection, to give them power over sin and death, to ascend to heaven and there intercede for them before the Father. They weren't looking for that. Most of the disciples at this point probably weren't even looking for that. They were still had in their mind that we're walking up from Jericho up up to Jerusalem and we're going to take over. This is where he's going to set up the kingdom. Get a sword, buddy. They're sure that's what's on the horizon. They weren't looking for this one that David called Lord. But David said, he is my master. Not will be my master. Not when he's born will become my master. But is today my master. David says, he is my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? <laughs> Powerful statement. This is the one we trust in. This is what we make our primary focus. It doesn't mean that we ignore everything else doctrinally, but rather we understand that all their doctrine comes to this apex. It comes to this point. This is who Jesus is and what he must do. And every area of doctrine we study brings us to understand the necessity of Christ, brings us to understand the person of Christ, brings us to understand the work of Christ, brings us to understand the nature of Christ, the love of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and all everything culminates in this one Jesus Christ. From the historical books to prophetic books to the wisdom literature to the epistles comes forward this question. Who is your Christ? When we get that one right, really right, and break our will against that stone the builders rejected, these other issues will fall into place. We'll believe such ridiculous things like the resurrection because God said so. Because no longer is it an issue for us. We'll simply say God said it. And I believe it, and that settles it. Once we get Christ right, 
we'll have no problem with what's in this book. Once we get Christ right, we'll have no problem paying our taxes because this world ain't our home. (laughs) This bank account isn't what I'm living off of. This career line, or lack thereof, I know a lot of you are hurting that way, uh, isn't the definition of me. Once I get Christ right, all the rest comes in, falls in. Once I break myself on that stone, once I break my will to His will, all the rest. Everything God's Word teaches, I'll believe. Because I've broken myself. When it comes to engaging the world, my priorities are different now because I'm a citizen of a different place. My citizenship isn't here. I, I, it's, it's, I don't walk around saying, God bless America. I walk around, my job is to walk around and say, America, bless God. Because that's what we should be doing. That's the Christian perspective. Is to call these people to call upon God. I don't want God to bless a bunch of heathens. I don't want it. Because if He blesses them and they're still heathens, they're going to stay heathens. That's what I found. See, the politics gets taken care of once I've broken my will to the Christ, the truth.